Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we will be interviewing Koshin Paley Ellison, who is a Buddhist teacher and actually a regular teacher of our fellows. So this will be a bit of a different conversation from our usual guests. And I've always really enjoyed Koshin, so can't wait to hear him. Let's welcome him. Koshin Paley Ellison is an author, Zen teacher, Jungian psychotherapist, and certified chaplaincy educator. He co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Koshin is the author of two books, Untangled and Wholehearted, as well as the co-editor of Awake at the Bedside. His work has been featured in the New York Times, PBS, CBS Sunday Morning, and Tricycle. Welcome, Koshin. Thank you. It's such a joy to see you both. I love the title of your book, Untangled. You say the tangle is all the ways we bind ourselves up in fear, uncomfortable stories, and self-created clouds of confusion. And we do this, ironically, to seek happiness. How do we get ourselves in this mess? And what does Zen Buddhism suggest that we can do to extract ourselves? Well, I think that one of the main causes of this entanglement is being born. And (laughs) we have this habit of getting into trouble because we want what we want when we want it. We get impatient. We get difficult. We get resentful. We hold on to stories. We forget that we belong to each other. And so we don't behave in ways that actually connect us. And so we get ensnared in this tangle of separateness, of our resentments and our greed. And so we forget that kindness and connection are available. And so to me, one of the beautiful ways of Ah, just remembering is learning how to actually pause and raise our eyes up and to realize, oh, you matter and I matter and we're here together, which is a rare thing. And I just think about all of the ways that we hurt ourselves in some ways by withdrawing, not that there's anything wrong with withdrawing, but just kind of we can withdraw too much in the same way that we can open too much. And I think it's always learning how to balance and learning how to take a moment to pause and connect. So beautiful. You mentioned our less helpful stories. Actually, your book, Untangled, is full of teaching stories. Some difficult ones from your own life, which I really appreciated your vulnerability in in sharing them. But then in Zen Buddhism, there are these very odd teaching stories called koans. What's their purpose? And do you have a favorite? (laughs) Yeah. Koans are what they actually mean is a public case. So it's often like a recording of like, oh, you remember that story of like when I was 
at the dining room with you, Victoria, and, and you said this, and I said that, and then someone records that and says, what do you think? And they're often designed to help us to get out of our conceptual thinking. So oftentimes, I think they're misunderstood as riddles, but they're actually ways to make ourselves a bit more present and lively in the moment. I was thinking about this beautiful koan that I love. It's called Zen Master Zuigan. And he used to just walk around and say to himself, are you awake? <laughs> and he would respond to the his same question, say, yes, I am. And then he would say, never be deceived. And he says, no, I won't. <laughs> and that's the whole koan. Uh-huh. And so you're supposed to when you're working with a teacher, then you express that some, your own version of that, your own beautiful, eccentric expression of that. And the reason I love this koan so much is that it's such a beautiful remembering that it's up to us to wake up. And sometimes we have to be like, hello, 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 are you here? <laughs> you know? Are you here? And yeah. wow, because we can get so clouded and so that one has been super important for me and especially as a young person really trying to figure out how to get out of the clouds of my own distraction out of my own hurt and out of my own stories that i've been holding on too long to and the second part of it to me is super interesting where he says you know and don't be deceived and how we deceive ourselves and thinking I'm not you. And we think that our story is true. We think that our feelings are true. We think that so many things are true as opposed to just the experience itself. One other one comes to mind really quickly. So like there's this, these two monks and so like these two guys are just like walking along and they run into this woman and she wants to cross the stream, but it's kind of swiftly moving. This is sort of a famous Zen story. Mm -hmm. And they, she says, you know, can one of you help me? And they're like, oh, no, we're not supposed to do that. And we're not supposed to be associating or hold touching women or something. And one of the monks was like, sure, I can help you. And just like, as my grandmother would say, kind of menchi and just like puts her on his back, brings her across the river. And then a couple days later, the other monk is like, hey, I can't believe you did that, you jerk. You know, we weren't supposed to do that. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, that woman. He's like, I put her down days ago. How about you? Yeah, you're and still carrying her. <laughs> yeah. Koshin, you talk a lot about compassion. What is compassion? How do we develop it? And what is its relevance in medicine? Yeah, it's such a beautiful and important thing. So most of us, I think, are deeply empathic people, which in how I understand it is just empathy is that neutral capacity that you feel one another. And like you're walking on the street and you feel like, oh, they're angry and you can just feel it in their body. And Compassion is what we can do with that. And so to me, it's the compassion is the action, the compassionate action that we work with that. And 
for me, good medicine is compassion. You know, I was thinking about yesterday, Chodo and I were, who's my husband, and we were sitting with these two people that we've had the pleasure of being with in their last moments of their, you know, they both have a terminal diagnosis of mother and daughter. It's so beautiful. Like one has a end-stage COPD and the other one has cancer and they're taking care of each other. It's so amazing. We were talking about compassion yesterday. The mother said, well, it's this, it's what we're doing. And it's what helps me remind myself that it's not about an hour from now. It's about what's between here and there. And she (laughs) touched her daughter's hand. It was so beautiful. Such a wonderful reminder about the importance of it because we can get caught up in, I know I can, in like what I'm supposed to do or not wanting to feel, you know, hopeless or helpless, but just to be sitting in the situation where they both know there's nowhere to go. And so compassion to me is that warming in the space. And the warming, it means to suffer with or to feel with, is the most generous thing we can do. Or as the beautiful mother said, you know, from here to there. That's such a wonderful and heartwarming story. And Mm. it strikes me that your work, of course, is to bring compassion more deeply into the world, into healthcare. And yet, healthcare right now feels often like the opposite of the quality you just described. Mm. What do you think we can do to make healthcare more compassionate? Well, I think what we can do is get together more and Mm. to create more loving space together. To me, it's like the pleasure of what the two of you are doing with this beautiful Integrative Medicine Fellowship. I mean, to me, it's like that. those kind of circles. I think about our dear bodhisattva brother who died, you know, Albert Einstein, he was called. He said that our work is to extend the circles of compassion. So I think that creating circles like the Integrated Medicine Fellowship, and which Chodo and I just love being part of, and also our Contemplative Medicine Fellowship, and these are ways of that we need more circles where we can actually be together And the world has such need, as we know that there was a loneliness pandemic long before the COVID-19 pandemic. All the different ways the world needs for us to remember that we matter and that showing up and actually maintaining circles of compassion to me, is exactly what's needed in this world. And to remember what medicine is, like what is medicinal, what is actually, what's good medicine, as the two of you teach all the time about, and it's Mm -hmm. so extraordinary. To me, it's like we need those voices all the time to remember, to remember. Yeah. You know, I think there's a practical problem, though, for some doctors that if you're too compassionate, you can be overwhelmed by identification with the suffering of patients. 
doctors I often hear have to screen that out or shut themselves off because otherwise they lose their center yeah I hear that all the time too and but my experience is over time that just was talking to a physician the other day who was saying that they went to this very progressive medical school because they thought there would be a different approach and they were told, is there such a thing I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question <laughs> and she was told like oh well turn off your feelings they'll come back eventually mm -hmm. wow wow and and they were saying you know it's been 15 20 years now and it still hasn't come back and what I experienced, there was this really interesting study. I'm terrible at remembering names of studies or dates, but there was a study in Canada of hospice workers actually self-described as compassionate and feeling their patients. And they were much more resilient. They would go back to their baseline very quickly. And the physicians and clinicians who describe like kind of trying to, as you're describing, kind of like, I don't have time for that. No, thanks. Were the ones who would burn out. The other key part of that study was that the people who were describing themselves as compassionate would feel really deeply. You know, they would get so sad, but then they would go back to their baseline. But the people who are trying to thwart it would just it's almost like trying to keep a beach ball under the water <laughs> you know eventually it's going to pop up in your face you know it's like it's not tenable i remember feeling very much like going through my medical training was an armoring process mm -hmm. and the problem with armor is it can become very hard to take off and one thing that i found really beautiful in untangle was a meditation that you share called opening the cage and i'm wondering whether you would take our listeners through this i would say if anyone's driving maybe listen to this later though <laughs> Yeah, I'd be happy to. Just a little background is that I too, as a young person, experienced lots of very challenging experiences of sexual violence and physical violence. That armor was so important. Mm -hmm. And anti-Semitic violence, like it was just, it's a, it was really like a gauntlet of difficulty. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I identified as kind of a victim of those things. Mm-hmm. And that's like what was part of the armor too, is that identity as mm -hmm. like, I'm a victim of those things. And what I started to realize is, oh my goodness, it's heavy, as you were saying, and difficult. And it had become, it began to feel like a cage. Mm -hmm. And the, so that very thing that protected me for so long, even the identity no longer served me. Those things did happen and they were terrible things, but I was no longer needing to be a victim of it. So I started to see like, oh, how can I open this, if this cage, mm -hmm. this armor had turned into a cage. And so I'd be happy to guide us through it. It's quite simple. So just take a moment to adjust your posture. And just see if you can ground yourself.
and allow your belly to be a little bit soft, even though a tiny bit. Your shoulders to be a little bit open. And just imagining that you're in a cage that is the size of your own body, just to like maybe a half an inch away from your body. In the front of the cage of your body is all the things that you know that are keeping you trapped in. Things that you know about your story that have been difficult that you're holding on to. And allow that to open. What would it be like to not have that right in front of you, in front of your face, in front of your heart, in front of your belly? Just notice what that feels like. And then noticing on the sides of your body that those are the things you kind of know. You're a little aware of that are kind of holding you in, penning you in. Maybe what you fear will happen. And allow those to open the sides, your fears. Allow that to fall away. There is still, you know, part of the cage remains, which is the back, which as Carl Jung called it, the shadow that we don't know and will carry with us. Something that we can always wonder about. And yet, because the front and sides are no longer holding us back, we can still walk with ease, breathe with ease, and move. So appreciating what was one's armor for what it has done for you and allow yourself to be here in this moment, feeling free, feeling clear, and spacious. Mm, that was so lovely. You know, Andy and I have a colleague, Joan Halifax. I'm sure she's oh, yeah. your friend, colleague as well. And one thing that I heard her say many years ago that really helped me with the sense of armoring is she said, just four words, soft belly, strong spine. You know, we yes. need a certain amount of structure, obviously, to carry us through, especially, I would say, the challenging world that uh, we live in at times. And yet, like you say, yeah. if you're completely armored, it's a burden. 
Koshin, you have a good sense of humor. My observation of you when you've come out to teach with us is that you laugh, you're happy, that humor is important to you. But Zen has a reputation for being very severe and humorless. And I have certainly known a number of very serious Zen practitioners who seem to be quite devoid of humor. And I wonder how you reconcile that and what importance you place on humor. Hmm. Well, life is so short. The joy of living is always available. There is some kind of form of strictness and lack of humor in the tradition, I would say. And I think that there's also many wonderful, very joyful, like there's this one monk named Ryokan who is just like this often known as the great fool. Mm -hmm. And he's a wonderful hero of mine. And he liked just to play with children and play ball and go into town and write poems. And people made fun of him. And he was like, that's totally fine. You know, he just felt that this incredible joy. And for me, the, the work is so serious. Medicine and Zen practice and being with people suffering with our own suffering is so serious. And to be serious on top of that feels crazy. There are some actually koans that says, please don't add another head on top of your head, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's to me, it's a great kindness to realize that life is also very joyful. And I experience life as incredibly joyful, which I never would have imagined as a young boy. And to me is really from going through the difficulty and you come through it and you're like, wow. Some years ago, I visited a, a rare Zen temple in Shanghai that was practicing. I was in the courtyard of this temple and a procession of monks came out looking incredibly humorless and serious. And there was a long line. And then at the very end, there was the master of the temple who was a fat, jolly monk <laughs> who was laughing and tossing his head around. And it was just wonderful to see. <laughs> it's so important. And I think that in general, it's, we think about in medicine and in life, like that life is so short. And, you know, we often talk about in Zen, you know, that life and death are of supreme importance and time swiftly passes by and opportunities are lost so we must awaken and to me one of the ways of awakening is through humor mm -hmm. and i think it was definitely through my jewish grandparents <laughs> who like who are very funny uh -huh. my, my mother always said that you must never lose your sense of humor she said it's important to always to see the ridiculous side of life totally i mean i remember my my <laughs> When my grandmother was in hospice, sometimes someone would come in and she'd be like, <laughs> or like, the, I remember like the chaplain came in to, he came into the doorway and she, there she is dying. And he says, Mrs. Ellison, you know, I'll be praying for you. And she's like, I'll be praying for him too. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's just like sometimes in these moments where, Yes, yeah, I think it was really her, as my grandma Mimi, who just like really taught me so much about humor. You know, one night actually, as she was dying, she was like, "Tonight's the night. Gather everyone around. I'm going to die tonight." And we're all like <laughs> sitting around, and she's sitting stoically in her bed, 
And she kept like looking down at her watch and like, <laughs> and then she was like around like 1030. She's like, listen, it's not going to happen. Let's order some pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if you could carry this into meditation because, and I'd love to ask both of you this question. Meditation is difficult for many people. And it's not only difficult, I would say, to get started. It's actually maybe even more difficult to maintain. It's kind of like weight loss, huh? And I'm wondering whether you have a tip, one, to get started, and two, how to maintain. And then three, is there a way to bring humor into meditation practice? Andy? I would say rocks, paper, scissors. (laughs) One trick is to remind yourself that on some level you are always meditating. There's a part of the mind that is always in meditation, and that's not where most of us put our attention. But knowing that that's inside you, that helps. Another just practical tip I find if I don't do meditation when I first get up, I tend not to do it. So for me, morning time, that transitional state between sleeping and waking, that's ideal for me. As for maintaining it, I think that's just a matter of it's a ritual that you do, just like brushing your teeth or doing some physical activity. So I would say two similar things. Well, first of all, there was another study that is I'm going to unsight. And, uh, <laughs> but I just remember, like, I think it was in the 80s and people stopped meditating because they didn't feel better. Mm-hmm. So meditation is not really designed to make you feel better. It's supposed to, as I understand it, trying to actually support you being courageous to be where you are. And most of us don't necessarily like where we are. So I think it's really important to remember, I think also, Andy, what you're saying, the discipline is actually what sets you free, in my experience. And most of us think like, oh, you know, free bird, like I want to just like do my own thing is freedom. Mm -hmm. I find freedom through discipline and ritual. Actually, to me, I have such a specific morning where I get up and have some matcha and then I go and work out. And then I sit with our community for half an hour. And to me, it's like that. Then I have a delicious breakfast and then I hold Chodo's face and then I head head out. And that, to me, it's I'm quite disciplined at that. And it feels like when I do that each morning, I feel so ready to meet the day. And so to me, sometimes not believing what we want and what we prefer, but actually what truly feels nourishing. Mm. Those are wonderful answers. I want to go back to the koan that you cited earlier, Am I Awake? (laughs) Andy, you actually have talked at some moment about maybe this is a simulation. How do we know if we're awake? (laughs) Well, I'm not an expert on that. I'm listening to what Elon Musk says, that we're certainly in a simulation. It's an interesting idea to me. I don't know that we could ever know that. Geez, another thought that I have is that I am a panpsychist. I believe that consciousness is primary and pervades everything. And I think that consciousness organizes matter into more and more complex forms to know itself. And maybe we eventually evolve towards 
being all knowing that that's part of the this strange process that we're in. Do you feel like you're getting close to all knowing? Isn't that enlightenment? <laughs> Maybe that's what we find out when we die. How about you, Koshin? How do we know if we're awake? To me, there's these glimpses that we have when we're, to me, it's like, I was talking about this yesterday, where yesterday there was these heavy rains in New York City, and there's a lot of dog shit, you know, and mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when it's heavy rains it's hard for people to pick it up and so like there was just like this it was bright yellow dog shit on the sidewalk and it was i just looked at it i noticed for a moment like a little preference about it and i was like <laughs> wow it's actually kind of like kind of beautiful the color of it was beautiful and next to it were these white azaleas yeah and it was just it actually took my breath away. This yellow, it was yeah. just beautiful yeah. in a weird, yeah. beautiful moment. And yeah. to me, it was just like, I just remember it going, and mm. it's just wonderful. And I think sometimes we have this idea of what awakeness is. And we think it's like that woman in the bathing suit on the cover of time magazine you know at the beach you know but i think it's in the midst of our ordinary life and it kind of reminds me of like those two women i was with yesterday who were just like oh it's the space between us you know it's like that when you realize it's nothing else other than those two lips right over there and i'm here yeah that makes me think of something else that I've heard you speak about, which is maybe another definition of awakeness, which is a full engagement with life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the zeitgeist right now is the opposite of that. It's distracted busyness. What do you think we could do to stop being so busy and notice the beauty of yellow dog shit next to white azaleas? slow down you know what's the hurry and i think that you know we were talking earlier about physicians like saying like i don't have time for this you know i don't have time for it but what we do have is actually all we have is time mm -hmm. and what we do with the time so to me it's always trying to remember like oh my goodness like all i have is the time that i have mm -hmm. i remember going into the neuro ICU and there was a physician there who was helicoptered in as he was walking to his retirement party mm. and he was dying he had a bleed in his brain and they couldn't stop it and he was dying and so I was just companioning him and his wife and he was like oh we're gonna after the retirement party, we we're going to go on a cruise around the world and we we're going to begin living. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what was I doing for 40 years? He's like, my goodness. I mean, those minutes that we think we don't have time for meditation, we don't have time to stop and just take in a face. <laughs> you know, like one of my favorite things to do is like, our centers here in Manhattan on 23rd Street is just like to notice people's faces is so amazing. 
And then you actually recognize the other people who are really walking and looking. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, look at you. You're looking too. Mm-hmm. You're here too. Yeah. And so I think it's really ordinary. And we have to make in some ways a decision mm-hmm. to like put our phone away and put our mind right in front of us and through us. And just be like, oh, look at their face. <laughs> yeah. I think I learned that from my grandma, too. (laughs) She loved people's faces so much. Such beautiful stories. Thank you. Is there a final caution that you would like to share? There's this really beautiful story (laughs) (laughs) that kind of goes out into silence where this teacher, you know, felt like, oh, he was visiting his, his teacher and... Then they got talking and it was into the night and his teacher gave him a little glass candle thing and lit the candle. And the student was very touched. He's like, oh, thank you so much. And so he was about to leave and his teacher said, oh, one one last thing. And so he opened the candle thing and blew out the candle because he needed to go out into the dark and out into the silence of the night Mm. and to feel his way there. And so to me, it's like our great practice and great work is to do that. Sometimes where we don't have the map, we don't have a candle, we don't have our flashlight on our phone, but we can move our way into this world knowing that we're with each other. Well, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for coming and teaching our fellows at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Thank you for the beautiful work that you do in this world. It's a privilege to be with you both and privilege to live, you know? Mm. One precious life we have. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions. For Andy, myself, or for our guests, you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. And we will try to answer some of your questions on our program.